Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. you back for week two of our Beyond the Horizon theme. Last week we looked at the explorations of several people in the ancient world and their reasons for their journeys, including the pursuit of knowledge and the drive of conquest. Today we're going to shift our attention to China and see why they set out to explore. With China, we have records across many centuries. Exploration for many countries has continued well into the modern day and China is no exception. So I'm going to focus on some of their older explorations. Those that predate the age of exploration we're going to get into next week. While the time does refer primarily to European history, China wasn't idle during that time, and I'll mention what they were doing as part of next week's episode. For today, we look to the older explorations. To start with, we're going to talk about an important explorer named Zhang Qian. We don't know when Zhang Qian was born, but we do know he was active during the Han Dynasty and died in 114 BCE. He was an official diplomat whose journeys took him out to Central Asia. He was, in fact, the first to bring back reliable accounts of these lands. Emperor Wu Di sent Zhang Qian out to Central Asia in 138 BCE with the goal being to establish relations with the Yueji people and work together against the Xiongnu, a common enemy. Unfortunately for Zhang Qian, the Xiongnu intercepted him and detained him for at least 10 years. He, along with the delegation traveling with him, managed to gain the trust of the Xiongnu leader during this time. Zhang Qian even took a wife, and together they had a son. When he and his new family managed to escape, he was able to reach the Yueji. However, he found that they had no interest in starting a war with the Xiongnu. Though he didn't receive the answer he'd hoped for when the emperor sent him out, he still chose to remain in the area for a time to document the people there. When he returned to China in 125 BCE, he brought with him a significant amount of detail regarding civilizations to the west. Sophisticated civilizations with whom China could establish beneficial relations. With a combination of direct observation and observation by his assistants, Zhang Qian gathered detailed information on the Fergana Valley in parts of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. He also recorded information about Bactria, an ancient region in modern-day Afghanistan, as well as Sogdiana in modern-day Uzbekistan. In addition to these, he gathered information on India and Parthia. Bactria, also known as the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom and the Indo-Greek Kingdom as it expanded into modern-day eastern Afghanistan and Pakistan, brought Zhang Qian into contact with the Hellenistic influences established by Alexander the Great during his conquests. Part of that lasting legacy I mentioned that Alexander left behind despite his inability to carry out his planned conquests into India and Arabia. So Zhang Qian brought back a wealth of information about these civilizations to the West. 
For Emperor Wudi, this was a potential boon for trade. These areas had products which were foreign and unusual to the Chinese of the time, and they also prized Han goods. Good signs for potential commercial ties. Not only did he bring knowledge, Zhang Qian brought back some of these goods with him. Among the most important of the goods he brought back were alfalfa seeds, good for growing food for horses. He also brought back superior horses that were stronger than the horses in the Han Empire. Zhang Qian was rewarded for his efforts with a position as palace counselor. Though he brought this wealth of information, Zhang Qian was ultimately unable to develop these commercial ties. One big obstacle still remained, the hostile Xiongnu. They stood between China and India and had no inclination to allow the establishment of trade routes. He first tried to go through Sichuan to the southwest, which was unsuccessful. Then, from 119 to 115 BCE, his final mission, he set out to establish ties with the Wusun people to the northwest. This mission proved successful in establishing trade between China and Persia, though the Wusun didn't immediately join the Han against the Xiongnu. Zhang Qian did return home from his final mission in 115 BCE, after which he was honored with a new position called Grand Messenger, which was one of the highest ministers of the Han government. Unfortunately, he was only able to enjoy this position for a short time because he died in China in 114, just a short year or so later. But he did leave quite a legacy, albeit a somewhat accidental one. His missions, which opened China to civilizations in the Western world, have seen him honored as the pioneer of the Silk Road. These missions had exposed the Western regions to Han goods and likewise exposed the Han to their foreign goods, opening the door for greatly expanded trade for all involved. In later years, the Chinese armies truly initiated this international trade avenue when they defeated the Xiongnu and secured the region. Zhang Qian, the second century envoy who became an explorer and is credited with pioneering a trade avenue that aided the development and relations of multiple civilizations. Zhang Qian truly had a profound impact on much of the world, much more than he ever could have imagined. To address the why in this scenario is a bit different, since he didn't set out to explore. He was sent out to try and form a strategic alliance against a common enemy, an enemy who held him for at least 10 years, after which time the alliance didn't even happen. So when he was faced with the situation, he truly made the most of it. He explored to gather information, to learn about the Western world, and discover anything that could benefit the Han Empire. As a result, he paved the way for China's initiation of the Silk Road. He adapted. Now how does one follow that? Fortunately for Xuanzang, he doesn't have to because we're going to jump ahead a few centuries. I know, it's sudden. With Zhang Qian, I wanted you to see what was happening in China and how they became connected to the Mediterranean and the rest of the Western world as they knew it. Now we're shifting focus shifting all the way to the 7th century CE. Xuanzang was born Chen Hui in 602 in Luoyang in the Henan province of China. Xuanzang was a Chinese Buddhist who took to religious texts at an early age. His ancestors have been traced back to the Eastern Han Dynasty. In the 2nd century CE, his ancestor Chen Shi was a minister in the empire. 
traced far enough back, it's very likely he had ancestors living in the time of Zhang Qian, though who knows if they actually interacted. Though he expressed interest in being Buddhist monk as a child, Xuanzang actually grew up in a Confucian household until the age of nine when his father died. At that time, he lived with his older brother Chen Su at the Jingtu Monastery in Laoyang. Chen Su had been the one to introduce him to Buddhist scriptures initially, and now he was able to study alongside him. It was here, at the young age of 13, that Xuanzang requested to take the Buddhist orders. The abbot, Zheng Shango, made an exception for him, though he wouldn't be fully ordained until years later. They were forced to flee in 618 when the Sui dynasty in which they lived collapsed and the Tang dynasty came into power. They first fled to the dynasty's capital Chang'an and then south to Sichuan. It was here that Xuanzang started to have concerns about discrepancies he found in the Buddhist texts. Still, he continued his studies and became a fully ordained monk in 622. However, those previously mentioned contradictions and discrepancies were still troubling him, and his Chinese masters had no answers to satisfy him. It's said that in 627 he had a dream of some sort, which led him to the decision that he needed to travel to India, the cradle of Buddhism, where he could learn more and address these discrepancies. Unfortunately, the Tang Emperor Taizong forbade his trip to India due to the Tang being at war and he was not allowed to leave the capital, Chang'an. But what explorer would be deterred by such a thing? In 629, he snuck out anyway. At this point, you can probably see that this exploration is a more personal one, not by decree of any king or emperor, and not exactly into unknown lands, though for Xuanzang they wouldn't be familiar. But you'll see that this journey, his exploration, will be more than it currently seems. Xuanzang traveled at night, hid during the day, and had to go it alone. He had no guide to help him, no one to show him the way or point out dangers. With his route taking him through multiple areas, including the Gobi Desert, it must have been quite a trial for him to endure a test of his resolve to reach India and learn more about Buddhism. His perseverance proved successful when he finally reached Liangzhou, which is in the modern Gansu province. In this time, this was both the westernmost extent of China as well as the southern end of the Silk Road route that connected China to Central Asia. Perhaps this is how you follow an explorer like Zhang Qian. Use the groundwork he laid down to carry out further exploration. Xuanzang was briefly detained by Chu Wentai of Hami, a Buddhist from China himself who wanted Xuanzang to his court as the ecclesiastical head. Following a hunger strike, the king finally let Xuanzang go with an introduction to kings he would meet in the future. In 630, he resumed his journey. Now he no longer had to travel at night. He was no longer a fugitive. Thanks to King Chu Wentai, he had official standing as a pilgrim and the credentials to get him through the territories between him and India. In that same year, he finally arrived at his destination. Once in India, he began traveling all over, seeking out monasteries and monks he could learn from. One such location was Odiana, where he found monasteries that were 1,400 years old and may have supported up to 18,000 monks in their prime. 
Now, just to give you a little context, we don't know exactly when Buddhism reached China. However, the current scholarly consensus holds that it was during the first century CE under the Han Dynasty, brought to them by missionaries from India via the Silk Road or maritime routes. Whatever the case, Xuanzang was at this point visiting monasteries in India that were hundreds of years older than Buddhism's presence in China. There were still some monks there, part of the Mahayana school of Buddhism, so his exploration had already brought him into contact with monks he could learn something from. Of course, this was only the beginning. He traveled north into Bunar Valley, back to Shabazz Garhi, and across the Indus River. He reached Taxila, where power struggles had left the temples ruined and few monks for him to speak with. In Kashmir, he met a monk by the name of Samgayasis in the year 631. Here he was in a center of Buddhist culture, right where he'd hoped to be. He wrote that there were over 100 monasteries and over 5,000 monks. He remained in this location through 633 to study with several monks, and he also wrote about the fourth Buddhist council that occurred in the first century CE. He later visited Chinyat and Lahore, two cities for which he gave us the earliest writings still available. So he's going through a physical kind of exploration, and a religious one as well. Maybe you can start to see what I mean about Horizon not necessarily being literal, though in Shrine Zhang's case, it's both. As he traveled east in 634, he visited monasteries in the Kulu Valley, most of which were not of the Mahayana school. Mathura to the south was Hindu-dominated, but Xuanzang writes that there were 2,000 monks from both of the major Buddhist branches. In 635, he crossed the Ganges to Matapura and studied under a monk named Mitrasena at the monastery he found there. In 636, he arrived in Kausambi, where he received a copy of a local image of the Buddha. In 637, he traveled to Kusinagara, significant as the location where the Buddha died then to Sarnath, significant as a location where the Buddha had given his first sermon. So he's visiting some very important locations. Later he spent at least two years in Nalanda, the greatest university in the Indian state of Bihar. Here he studied among thousands of scholar monks. He learned things like logic, grammar, and Sanskrit during his time here. Sanskrit is going to be very important later. He also learned more about the Yogacara school of Buddhism. Nalanda was where he found a great deal of knowledge that he'd been searching for. He remained here longer than anywhere else, although we don't know exactly how long it was, learning and absorbing as much as he could. Previously, he had studied at the Majyamika school, named from the pursuit of seeking a middle ground between the Sarvastivada doctrine that focuses on a philosophy that all is real and the Yogacara school that focuses only on the mind. At Nalanda, and with the approval of his mentors, he wrote a treatise, Huizong Lun, translated as On the Harmony of the Principles, in which he formed his own comprehensive synthesis of these two schools. Additionally, with all the knowledge he'd accumulated so far, he became a critic of two philosophical systems in Hinduism, Samkhya, based on dualism of nature and spirit, Vaisashika, a form of direct realism. 
both were irreconcilable contradictions with Yogacara Buddhism. Remember that he originally set out to find someone who could help him resolve contradictions and discrepancies within Chinese Buddhism. Now, not only was he finding what he was after, but he was also taking that knowledge to highlight contradictions other systems had with Buddhism. He was expanding his horizons geographically and in terms of this knowledge he possessed. In addition to that, he was developing his skills as an analyst and in debate. He had a few more travels in India, wrote on cultures he encountered, and visited a great Buddhist assembly at the request of King Harshavardhana, friend of Hindu King Kumar Bhaskur Varman, who Xuanzang had met at the king's own invitation. In the year 643, he began his journey home. In the spring of 644, he reached the ancient kingdom of Khotan, one of the earliest Buddhist states that was, at the time of Xuanzang's return, independent from the Tang dynasty. Here, he stopped and sent a request to Emperor Taizong, asking that he be allowed to return home. Remember, Xuanzang snuck out back in 629 under the rule of Taizong, who had forbidden him from leaving. He couldn't just walk back in like nothing happened. Fortunately, Taizong allowed his return, and he arrived in Chang'an at the start of the year 645, according to the Chinese lunar year. As it turned out, Xuanzang wasn't just allowed back in. He was met with honor. Emperor Taizong sent a decree for Xuanzang to have a royal audience. In this audience, he was offered at least one official high-ranking position, which he rejected. Following this, there was a gathering of all Buddhist monks living in Chang'an. He provided them with the items he'd gathered during his travels. These included relics, manuscripts, and statues from the many locations he'd visited in India. Over 600 Mahayana and Hinayana texts, seven statues of the Buddha, and more than a hundred Sarira relics. That count is from Xuanzang's biography, written by a monk named Huli. These items were placed in the Temple of Great Happiness, where Xuanzang spent the remainder of his life working to translate the Sanskrit works he'd brought with him. He had over 20 translators, each educated in Chinese, Sanskrit, and of course Buddhism, helping him accomplish this task. Not only did he translate works from Sanskrit into Chinese, but he also translated Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, also Tao Te Ching, into Sanskrit and sent it to India. Remember from a few months ago that Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching is a fundamental text of Taoism in both the philosophical and religious aspects. So Xuanzang wasn't just learning from India, but also helping to spread Taoism by introducing it to India through the translation of this text. So Xuanzang has traveled to India and returned home. He remained in China until his death in the year 664. Now let's talk about the impact his journey and explorations into India had beyond his own personal development. One significant development was the initiation of the Faxiang school. He didn't live to see it thrive, but it was his study and commentary of the Sanskrit text that really got it started. The idea of reality coming from the mind found in the Yogacara school is part of this school as well. So, effectively, what Xuanzang did was learn from India the parts of Buddhism he felt were lacking in Chinese Buddhism 
and brought those back, forging the Faxiang Buddhism as a result. Faxiang and Yogacara struggled as other Chinese Buddhist traditions emerged, but they never went away. His meticulous translations also preserved Indian Buddhist texts. In later years, following his journey and work, some of those original texts were lost. Of particular significance is the Heart Sutra. This is said to be the most frequently used text in all of Mahayana Buddhism and other East Asian Buddhist sects. The oldest dated version is a stone stele discovered in 661 CE and currently at the Yunju Temple. Additionally, it is the oldest known copy of Xuanzang's 649 translation. So without his translation, this sutra likely would have been lost. As one more note, Xuanzang's journey and explorations inspired one of the four great classical novels of Chinese literature, Journey to the West. You may not know the story, but you've probably heard the title. The West refers to Central Asia and India, where Xuanzang traveled. There, he obtained sacred Buddhist sutras while overcoming trials. Xuanzang, the monk on the journey, is named Tang Sanzang. Of course, the author added various elements such as disciples Sun Wukong, Zhu Bajie, and Sha Wujing. The ultimate goal is enlightenment achieved through working together and maintaining virtue. Chinese folk religion and lore, along with Taoist and Buddhist philosophies, all influence the more fictional elements of the story. With it being published in the 16th century, Xuanzang never knew his travels inspired such a classic, one that has been translated into multiple languages around the world and adapted into stage, television, and movie formats. So that's Xuanzang, his journey, his explorations, and the impact he left on China and the rest of the world. I know we only covered two Chinese explorers, but I did pick these two for a reason. Well, more than one reason. The first is that they are two very different types of explorers. Their reasons for doing what they did fell into different categories. For Zhang Qian, it was an accidental situation that he turned into a beneficial one. For Xuanzang, it was a journey to explore another region for the purposes of exploring Buddhism to find answers that just weren't found in China. As a result, he ended up bringing new information to China, even influencing that famous journey to the West. But that's not the only reason. The other is that they are, in a sense, connected. Zhang Qian's explorations, which led to establishing trade in the West and the distinction Pioneer of the Silk Road, set in motion developments that would later make it possible for Xuanzang to go on his own journey. Silk Road trade routes facilitated Xuanzang's journey into India, which facilitated the knowledge he brought back to China. The point I'm making is that explorations can build on one another. Sure, it could be argued that China's initiation of the Silk Road was inevitable. It could also be argued that the opposite is true. That sort of speculation is beyond our discussion. I just want you to see how exploration in one time can have lasting effects that facilitate explorations in later years. Next week, we'll be moving into the Age of Exploration. As the name suggests, there's a lot for us to find there. Until then... Take care.